All right, Hannah, I might just pray for you and Stephen as he comes to bring us God's word. Lord, uh, please be with Hannah uh, as she reads and Stephen as he preaches. And Lord, please be with us as a congregation. Please uh, help us to have open hearts to hear what we need to hear to make our lives more like you. Uh, And we pray that we thank you that we can read your word in public uh, and the privilege that that is. Amen. Uh, Our first Bible reading is from John chapter 5, starting at verse 21 to 30. So, starting at verse 21, where Jesus says, For just as the Lord raises, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming And all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Next Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him 
Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead... Sorry. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Hannah. Well, uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that I spoke uh, towards the end of last week's message, uh, that I spoke about a man named Bishop John Shelby Spong. Uh, in certain circles, Bishop Spong has become something of a celebrity, or at least a well-known spokesperson for a vast number of churchgoers who feel that it is impossible to take the historic Christian faith seriously on face value. Certainly, Bishop Spong gets media coverage, uh, media courage, uh, coverage um, such as here in Australia by the ABC, coverage that perhaps conservative Christian scholars such as Britain's um, Bishop N.T. Wright would never get. And last week I mentioned two of his many books. His most famous book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, was published in 1991. And his most recent book, Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today, was published in 2018. What uh, Bishop Spong uh, wants to do in essence is to take out, take away the supernatural out of our Christian faith so as to better emphasize the ethical and moral. Love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, etc., etc. And in line with that project, he utterly rejects 
the notion of the doctrine of the virgin birth, the incarnation, and perhaps as is most relevant to us today, he rejects the historical and bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not rise from the dead, according to Bishop Spong. Why not? Well, no better answer is required than this. Jesus did not rise from the dead because nobody rises from the dead. Dead people, by definition, do not come back to life. It's not difficult to discern what is motivating Spong. He wants to save the church, his beloved church, of which he has been a lifelong member and to the welfare of which he has devoted his life. He wants to save the church from embarrassing fundamentalists. And why are fundamentalists so embarrassing? Well, perhaps for any number of reasons, but what's opposite here is um, that the thinking and conclusions of fundamentalists are wrapped up in the philosophical constructs of another age altogether. We live in an age that has little room for supernatural explanations or for spiritual causes. Surely then, if Christianity can be rescued from such a pre-modern scaffolding, it can be set free to thrive in a modern, or even indeed a post-modern, age. Well, uh, welcome to uh, talk two in a three-part series of uh, talks on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this one long chapter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about something that troubles Paul enormously. He has found out from certain members of Chloe's household who are visiting Paul in Macedonia that there are some in that church, there are some, uh, a certain faction in the church of Corinth who are teaching that there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. It is perhaps not difficult to guess why the idea of a resurrection of the dead would have been difficult for Christians of Gentile background, Greeks and Romans who'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as saviour of the world. Why would this have been such a confronting idea to them? Well, the philosophies of their age tended to stress a marked polarity, a dichotomy between on the one hand, the spiritual side of things. And that which was spiritual, pure, good, abstract, theoretical, that was, that was pure and heavenly and wonderful and transcendent. But the physical or the material side of things, that was just the opposite. Uh, imperfect, debased and debasing, profane. So then the idea of uh, death being the start of a new, pure, spiritual, heavenly existence. Yes, that was a great idea. Big tick, they loved that. But the idea of a future resurrection of the dead being made physical all over again, that was just a terrible idea. So then, in all probability, to many of the Christians in the church of Corinth, the idea of a resurrection of the dead was Unbelievable, unpalatable, and unimaginable. Unbelievable, dead bodies don't come back to life. Unpalatable, I'm wanting to escape this material existence and slavery to all those associated appetites. Why would God repeat the cycle? And 
unimaginable. I cannot imagine how a resurrection could work or what the resurrection of the dead would look like. I just can't imagine it. Well, Paul began his rebuttal, we saw last week, by reminding them of the Christian gospel as all of the apostles preach it, as Paul himself had received and delivered over to them unaltered, a gospel of resurrection. And the point that he made was this. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead is a well-attested, rock-solid historical fact. And you can, he reminds his first audience, you can speak to the eyewitnesses yourself, for most of them are still alive. And there's more than 500 of them. Now, in developing his rebuttal in our passage for this week, Paul links the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And again, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. You cannot have one without the other. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead are not separate things, but actually the same thing. Perhaps different views of the same phenomenon, but it's the one thing, it's the resurrection of humanity. How is this so? Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul understands that the history of the human race begins again in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the first human being of humanity redeemed, the new humanity. You see, human beings were created in order to exercise dominion over the rest of the creation. They were, to quote Genesis 1.28, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the Adam, um, and by the Adam, uh, I mean humanity in first fruits, the first human being, the Lord God took the Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and preserve it. And in that same chapter, we read about how the Adam came to give names to all the living creatures, to the livestock, to the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Naming. The Adam took the Lord's place as his representative, taking up authority in giving names to creatures that he had no right to name because he hadn't made them. But the Lord had given him that authority in his image and likeness, his representative. And by the Lord's invitation, he named them. 
even though they were the Lord's handiwork, not his. Naming. The Adam gives names to all the living creatures as the first step in relationship. A relationship of serving and preserving. And these different pictures in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 combine to show us that it was the will of God that humanity exercised dominion, authority, and power upon the earth, but that, or perhaps and that, that dominion, authority, and power, it would be cross-shaped. A willingness to serve, a willingness to save. Uh, but then comes, of course, as we all know, in the ordering of the narrative, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, grasping at independent rule, autonomy, uh, ruling indeed so as to serve and preserve, but now ruling so as to serve and preserve their own welfare, not that of others. And with that came death. But if it was originally the plan of God, the will of God that humanity, that human beings might exercise saving power, dominion, and authority, then that will, that plan, has prevailed. But not through the first Adam, named Adam, but through the second Adam, the son of Adam, the son of man, Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, now... We know, as Christians, that we live in the age of the reign of Jesus. Cross-shaped leadership exercised from heaven, evil being challenged and undone. Not by power, nor by might, but by a willingness to forgive, perseverance in repaying evil with good, and in preparedness to suffer for what is right. Cross-shaped, the cross-shaped lordship of Jesus Christ is somewhat covert, hidden in plain sight, difficult at times even for Christians to discern, impossible for non-Christians to discern, except that they are given revelation by the Spirit leading unto conversion. But things that are out of step with Jesus' own character and purposes, yes, they might flourish for a time, but sooner or later, Jesus comes and brings such things to judgment. Even death, pain, and Satan have a purpose in all of this. But when that purpose is fulfilled, these things too will be finally destroyed. Jesus will return. The dead will rise to be judged. Some to everlasting glory, others to everlasting shame. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead on the third day, itself an historical fact, is the guarantee written in history of all of these things. What then might it mean? What might it mean if we, as Christians, try to reconfigure the Christian faith without either the resurrection of Jesus as an historical fact or the resurrection of the dead as our future hope. What would that look like? Well, Paul tells us, actually, he gives us a bit of a list. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, Paul says as a representative of the apostles, is useless and so is your faith. 
No, the apostolic gospel is worse than useless, Paul quickly realizes. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, they are false witnesses about God. Because they are saying things about God that aren't true. They're saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, a false witness about God is a false prophet. And, as Paul would know better than anyone, the law of Moses reserved the death penalty for false prophets, those who claim things falsely on behalf of God. And those who believe the apostolic gospel are in a worse state than simply believing a useless faith. No, it's worse than useless. It's dangerous. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. To be sure, Christ died for our sins. He died on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the price for our redemption. He took the punishment our sins deserved. But the power of sin is death. And the power of sin is not broken unless Jesus rose from the dead. It is the resurrection of Christ that vouchsafes Christ's work on the cross, showing us that it was effective. It is the resurrection of Christ that allows us to not only be forgiven, but indeed reconciled. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion, it might be an impressive demonstration of costly love, an extravagant display of our worth to God that he sent his son to die on our behalf, but without the resurrection... It is nothing more than that. It is of no practical value. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If there is no resurrection, then there is no eternal life, nor eternal hope. Verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Um, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we, we, we've all got it completely wrong. Um, and and it, it's dangerous to be here. If, if there is no resurrection, then, then we're wrong to forgive others because we ourselves are not forgiven. So then let's take justice into our own hands. If there is no resurrection, we are behaving stupidly when we repay evil with good because we will only be taken advantage of further. You've got to learn to stand up for yourself in this world. If there is no resurrection, it is a complete waste of time to suffer for what is right, because suffering has no redemptive value in the end at all, no practical application. Suffering, therefore, must be avoided at all costs. Otherwise, you could end up just like Jesus, dying on a cross for no reason. No, let's avoid suffering at all costs and pursue pleasure at any price. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says to the Corinthians, their ministry and his ministry is useless. 
Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, verse 29, just in case you're wondering and thinking, what's all that about? Uh, yes, it is mysterious. We don't know what it's all about. Uh, we do not know anything about this ministry practice of theirs, people being baptized on behalf of other people who are already dead. Uh, we don't know anything about that except that that which we can deduce from this one and only reference to the practice. Presumably, people were concerned for the eternal welfare of family and friends who died before having had any chance to hear the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And out of this concern, perhaps came the practice of a living person being baptized on behalf of someone already departed. We can presume that this is in fact ineffectual and unnecessary because the practice is not otherwise recommended, explained, nor did it survive the first century. But Paul, rather than tackling that particular issue head-on as an odd and unnecessary thing to do, he simply comments then that, besides being ineffectual, it is nonsensical if they themselves are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. As for his own ministry, only the resurrection of the dead, based on the historic truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, only that could justify suffering for the gospel and for Paul putting his life on the line for the gospel again and again and again, day in and day out. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then let us eat and drink and enjoy ourselves, for tomorrow we die. To not live for pleasure would be foolishness. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Th that is a sharp rebuke. Paul is saying, don't have anything to do with people who are denying the resurrection. With respect to God, they do not know what they're talking about and their message is evil. It is shameful that you, the church in Corinth, haven't acted decisively to shut down those voices. And this brings us back to Bishop John Shelby Spong, doesn't it? The appeal of his gospel, a gospel without miracles, a gospel without a resurrection, is actually not really that you don't have to deal with all of that embarrassing supernatural stuff, but rather the real appeal of his gospel is that you don't have to deal with sin. In Spong's church, no one has to deal with the fact that they are a sinner, with the fact that they are actually evil. No, in the liberal church, the problem with humanity is ignorance. And the answer is education. 
People are basically good, you see, and so when you teach them to be nice to each other, they will be nice to each other, and it'll all be okay. And that's nice, because nice people do not like to be told that they're sinners. But the real problem with humanity is not ignorance, but sin. Although ignorance, of course, can be one awful manifestation of human sinfulness. That begs the question, what is sin? Well, when we were kids, maybe at Sunday school, we learned that sin is the bad things we do. Yep, that's right. But there's more to it, isn't there? I've sometimes described sin as ignoring God and breaking his rules. We are breaking his rules when we ignore God, and we are ignoring God when we are breaking his rules. Yes, that's right, sin is that. But there's more to it, isn't there? Sin is ultimately that anti-God orientation in our hearts, and all the works that spring from that are fundamentally rebellious disposition at the core of our beings that delights in autonomy and self-rule and that manifests itself in any number of different ways. Yes, that's sin. That's right. It's getting complex. But there's more, isn't there? Well, uh, recently I came across a definition of sin that for me personally appeals as probably the best definition of sin you could possibly come across. And that definition is this. Sin is un-Jesus-likeness. That's what it is. Sin is un-Jesus-likeness. And this brings us back again to Bishop John Shelby Spong. Last week I made the comment that for Bishop Spong... The Christian gospel has no special significance or unique claim on eternal truth. In other words, for him, Christianity is his religion. And indeed, it is his beloved religion, but it is still a religion, and not to be considered superior to anybody else's religion. Well, you can imagine how well that goes down with the ABC. But he's right. Without the resurrection, Christianity is indeed just a religion. Just one out of any number of religions. Do this, do that. A little rule for this, a little rule for that. Act like this, don't be caught doing that. Well, God has a special place in store for religious people. It's called hell. But if God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and indeed, of course, he did, then the last thing you'd want to mistake Christianity for is a religion. It's a hole smashed in this universe. It's the point through which anyone can escape that which is otherwise inescapable. In a cosmos that is devoted to death and destruction, where those things reign supreme. It is a way out, the only way out. It's the guarantee, it's the guarantee that all un-Jesus-likeness now stands condemned, is already doomed to death and destruction. 
What does all this mean in practical terms? It means that dealing with un-Jesus-likeness in ourselves and in the world is of immediate and critical importance. It means that forgiving others is a whole heap more than just a good idea with respect to our emotional well-being. No, it is essential. Given the resurrection, both of Christ in the past and of ourselves in the future, not forgiving others would be suicidally stupid. It means that when we repay evil with evil, we are doing something that is fundamentally at odds with reality. We are behaving as though Jesus does not reign at the Father's right-hand side, as though he is not coming soon in order to repay each person for what they have done. And it means that we can face this present darkness with confidence, knowing that engaging with all the evil in the world, with injustice, poverty, hunger, loneliness, ignorance, disease, sickness, superstition, fear, selfishness, greed, homelessness, prejudice, whatever it might be, we know that engaging with evil through the means of suffering for what is right is not only worthwhile, it's what we're actually here for. Only the fool lives for pleasure. And this means, for example, and for our young people, that um, when, when our young people are considering what to study after school or what trade or profession to pursue, the question becomes not so much, how am I going to make a living or what prestigious profession do I, do I see myself an esteemed member of, but rather, how am I going to engage with this present darkness? How has God gifted and equipped me to challenge evil in this world, acknowledging before I start that I'll suffer for it? And may the Lord God Almighty, who raised our brother Jesus from the dead, the first fruits of this new humanity, may he lift you up and carry you today and always. Amen.